All right, we are back. We're not sure about that doctor writing a prescription to make a, an alligator, an emotional support animal, but we really, really have to have some doubts about uh, doctors in Britain. At least some, at least one doctor at the Leicester Royal Infirmary. The story is that Terry Brazier was too busy chatting with a nurse at the Leicester Royal Infirmary while under local anesthesia to notice he was getting the wrong procedure. He was supposed to receive bladder outpatient surgery. Instead, he was circumcised. I bet that's the last time he distracts a nurse. Said Brazier, they didn't know what to say when they'd done it. It was a real surprise. For its part, the hospital blamed muddled notes. And Brazier has been awarded almost $24,000 in compensation by the UK's National Health Service. Now, you know, we do admit one should receive compensation when an error like that is made. I'm pretty sure that, you know, all of the Jews and Muslims who are listening to this program, along with a substantial portion of other males, are going to react with, what's the big deal? We ended uh, the segment last uh, with some, some looks at animals and human relations to animals. And we have a couple of good news items in that very genre. So let's talk about those. To quote from The Economist, Kurt the bison is not sure he wants to return to the wild. After 20 hours in a truck from Germany to Romania, he takes a few hesitant steps down the ramp, chews some leaves, then heads back inside. Two hours later, he's still there, delaying the bolder females stuck deeper inside the lorry. Finally, the rangers shoot him with a tranquilizer dart, eight men, two per hoof, carrying him into an enclosure where he recovers. The other beasts trot dutifully after him across a small bridge. They will join two herds already 50 strong in Transylvania. European bison were hunted to the brink of extinction in the early 20th century. Fewer than 60 individuals remained, all in captivity. In the U.S., of course, it should be noted, the American bison population fell below 500. Yet both species have been nursed back to health. Herds have already been reestablished in Poland and Belarus. The article quotes Rob Stone of Rewilding Europe is saying, on the face of it, we're just releasing some big animals into the forest. On the face of it, we're just releasing some big animals into the forest, said Rob Stoneman of Rewilding Europe, a group overseeing the project with the Worldwide Fund for Nature, a charity. But this is a keystone species. They open the forest up. Bison herds will prevent shrubs from spreading across pastures. Red deer will flourish in their wake. Deer and bison will be preyed upon by gray wolves and brown bears. Well, we hope that works out in Transylvania. And from down under, in this case, New Zealand, we have some good news about the kakapoo. The kakapoo is a cuddly bird which lives down in New Zealand. The Economist notes it is not designed for survival. Weighing up to four kilograms, it's the world's fattest and least flighty parrot. It mates only when the rimu tree is in fruit, which happens every few years. Like other weird and wonderful creatures of the antipodes, it evolved in the absence of land-based predators. So instead of soaring above the trees, it waddles haplessly across the dry forest floor below. When it stumbles across something that might kill it, it has a lamentable habit of standing still. 
Such oddities turned the kakapu into fast food for human settlers and for the cats, rats, and possums they brought with them. It seemed extinct by the 1970s until scientists stumbled upon two undiscovered populations in the country's south. These survivors were eventually moved to small predator-free islands where the Department of Conservation has spent decades trying to get them to breed. Its patience may finally be rewarded. The remo was in fruit this year, and more than 80 chicks hatched after a bumper crop, making this the best breeding season on record. Many have survived into adolescence, increasing the number of adult kakapoos by a third to a grand total of 200. Anyway, we're pulling for the kiwis (laughs) and their kakapoos. The kiwi, of course, is another New Zealand flightless bird. It is also, as I recall... A shoe polish. And no, I have no explanation for why they named a shoe polish after a flightless New Zealand bird. If you know the answer to that, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And you know, there's really no doubt that there is a kind of story that is, is attractive to us here at Radio Parallax. I'm not sure how I would label that particular type of story. We'll leave that up to you, dear listener. But here's an item that qualifies article from the Washington Post by a Darren Taylor. The headline is, This man ate expired food for a year. Here's why expiration dates are practically meaningless. Notes the article, Last year, Mom's organic market founder and chief executive Scott Nash did something many of us are afraid to do. He ate a cup of yogurt months after its expiration date. I do want to pause right there to note that we have related on this program in years past how this correspondent discovered a cup of yogurt that had been in the back of the refrigerator for, I don't know, had been pushed back there and left for like a year. It smelled fine. It looked fine. I ate it. I suffered no ill consequences. It seemed like a normal cup of yogurt to me. So naturally, we're kind of pulling for Scott Nash here. The article goes on. He then moved on to tortillas a year past their expiration date. I mean, I ate heavy cream, I think, 10 weeks past, Nash said, and then meat, sometimes a good month past the date. It didn't smell bad, rinse it off, good to go. It was all part of his year-long experiment to test the limits of food that had passed its expiration date. It turns out the dates on our food labels do not have much to do with food safety. In many cases, expiration dates do not indicate when the food stops being safe to eat. Rather... They tell you when the manufacturer thinks that product will stop looking and tasting its best. Some foods, such as deli meats, unpasteurized milk and cheese, and prepared foods, such as potato salad, that you do not reheat, probably should be tossed after their use-by dates for safety reasons. Again, deli meats, unpasteurized milk, unpasteurized cheese, and, you know, potato salad in some cases. The article notes that tossing out a perfectly edible cup of yogurt every once in a while does not seem that bad, but it adds up. According to a survey by the Harvard Law School Food Law and Policy Clinic and the John Hopkins Center for a Liberal Future and the National Consumers League, 84% of consumers at least occasionally throw out food because it is close to or past its package date. And over one-third, 37%, say they always or usually do so. That food waste in landfills generates carbon dioxide and methane, a greenhouse gas 
28, 36 times more effective at trapping heat than CO2. You are not just wasting calories and money. You are wasting all the resources that went into growing, packaging, and transporting that food. The article notes that the FDA, researchers, and the grocery manufacturing industry largely agree on an initial solution to this particular set of food waste problems. Clearer package date labels. In 2017, the grocery industry, led by the Grocery Manufacturers Association and the Food Marketing Institute, announced a voluntary standard on food date labeling. They narrowed the plethora of date labeled terms down to two, best if used by and used by. Best if used by describes product quality, meaning the product might not taste good past the date, but is safe to eat. Used by is for products that are highly perishable and should be used or tossed out by that date. Anyway, we applaud such efforts. We waste too much food in this country. And obviously, in this case, a lot of it has to do more with marketing and selling you more yogurt, I would dare say, than it is with actual food safety concerns. All right, and since we're talking about health, here's an item from the January 20th issue of The Economist that kind of caught my eye. It had to do with the subject of homeopathy, at least in France. Noted the magazine, for a nation that regards itself as the cradle of reason, the French display a peculiar fondness for homeopathy. More than half of them have ingested homeopathic cures based on the notion, debunked by numerous scientific studies, that water retains, quote, memory, unquote, of active ingredients, whose healing power rises as their concentrations fall to a few molecules per dose. Now, homeopathic profits risk being watered down after the French health ministry ruled earlier this month that their products would no longer be refunded by Social Security. France has recognized homeopathic remedies as akin to medicine, <laughs> akin to medicine, since the 1960s. In 1984, it made them eligible for partial reimbursement from the public purse. Patients there guzzle $700 million worth of the stuff a year out of global sales of perhaps $4 billion. The favorable treatment owes a lot to a vocal homeopathic pharmaceutical lobby. The world's biggest maker of such cures is Boiron, based outside Lyon, with total sales of 600 million euros last year. Many doctors practice homeopathy, but put its supposed health benefits down to the placebo effect, which is a real thing. As we've noted on this program many times, any doctor that can't make the placebo effect work for him is in the wrong line of work. The economist noted that at first, the health minister, Agnes Buzin, seemed to accept the case that patients who popped sugar pills might cut down on antibiotics and other pharmacology, which the French notoriously overconsume. But the advice of scientists and the prospect of saving over 100 million euros a year prevailed. Reimbursement rates will decline from 30% today to nothing by 2021. Boiron's bosses have described the cuts as shocking and unfair. They must fear for the health of its operating margins. At 18%, these rival those of big drug makers such as Novartis and Pfizer. Homeopaths do not command the high prices of advanced drugs, but can scrimp on science. Boiron employs just 13 people in research in a workforce of 3,700. 
and spends 3.8 million euros a year or 0.6% of sales on innovation. By contrast, one in six employees at many big pharmaceutical firms is a researcher and drug makers spend an average of 16% of revenue on developing new treatments. Of course, they also charge a lot more for many medicines than homeopaths do. Anyway, for more on homeopathy, we refer you to our archives and our talks with Simon Singh, whose book, Trick or Treatment, we enjoyed very much. Also, our discussion with the legendary <laughs> prestidigitator and escape artist, the amazing James Randi, who uh, <laughs> I was privileged to assist in a demonstration at Ohlone College in Fremont some years back of James Randi taking a massive overdose of homeopathic sleep medicine, which had zero effect whatsoever on him because it was a homeopathic remedy. James Randi's math on the dilutions that went into this particular remedy indicated that the volume of the active ingredient, so-called active ingredient in the pills, had been expanded out to the orbit of Pluto. At any rate, we would add, for God's sake, save your money. Now, we did have one, or former listener, for all I know, he's listening now, who has labeled himself a health writer. This, despite the fact that he openly endorses homeopathy. In fact, he wrote me over the summer to describe how his doctor at Kaiser was unable to cure him. He later went back and labeled him a quack for his use of allopathic medicines. Doctor, he had received homeopathic remedy, which had cured him. Now, we admit it's possible that he was cured of whatever condition he had after he took the homeopathic remedy. And we would also add that to be convinced that that was the reason why one was cured demonstrates the post hoc ergo proctor hoc logical fallacy. We would editorialize that there's probably nothing in modern society that is more demonstrably a fraud from start to finish than is homeopathy. For its principles to be correct, then the principles of chemistry, biochemistry, physiology, and I dare say physics must all be incorrect. You pays your money, you takes your chances. Dear listener, you're free to choose which camp you'd like to belong to. I do have to pull up the Discover Magazine's 20 Things You Didn't Know About Your Back, which came out some months ago. I'm attracted to items 16, 17, and 18 of these 20 Things You Didn't Know. To quote from it, 16, the modern practice of chiropractic began when Daniel David Palmer, a self-styled, quote, magnetic healer, unquote, claimed to have restored the hearing of a deaf man by popping one of his vertebra back into place back in 1895. 17, Palmer believed that a back out of whack, a subluxation, quote, unquote, or vertebral misalignment causes 95% of disease. And number 18 is that a 2012 white paper by the Institute of Science in Medicine declared, there is no scientific evidence that a chiropractic subluxation exists or that their purported detection or correction confers any health benefit. Having said that, I I would note, to modify that ever so slightly, that if you're getting a modified massage or some physical therapy or having yourself worked on and pushed around, pushed and pulled and whatever... Eh, a lot of times that might have some beneficial effect. Remember when I was a medical resident discussing this very topic with one of the orthopedic surgeons, 
His comment was, oh yeah, chiropractors, they take back x-rays and then they show you how your back isn't completely straight. No, it's not like that perfect two by four at Home Depot. Nobody's back is going to be perfectly straight. Anyway, enough about that. Now, driving around Los Angeles, which yours truly was doing several weeks back, I, uh, I happened to pass near the town of Simi Valley, the site of the old Spawn Movie Ranch, which, of course, is one of the settings in Quentin Tarantino's current movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the next day, I find myself in Westwood Village, uh, walking over to the movie theater, which actually appears in the film. Now, these two factoids in aggregate are, you know, as close as I got to hanging out with Quentin Tarantino down in La La Land. But I just want to say, uh, I thought it was an interesting movie. I sometimes think of Quentin Tarantino as one of Hollywood's idiot savants, who during the course of one of his films might leave you tapping your fingers at how, you know, one scene is just silly, and then morph into something that you're watching and going, my God, this is brilliant. The movie does inspire us to bring on a guest, which we hope to do in the weeks to come, to talk about uh, uh, that saga of the Manson family. There's apparently more to the story of Charles Manson than we have heard. I don't want to say too much more than that because I don't know that much more than that, except that I heard an author of a book about him. I, the name escapes me at the moment. I'll have it for you next time. Uh, that was talking about how he followed Manson's career and noted that again and again and again, Manson was getting released from custody in a very strange pattern. The author, after going over some of these records with law enforcement officials, had them say, no, there's something odd here. This is very strange. And it's hinted rather strongly that uh, Vincent Bugliosi, author of the best-selling Helter Skelter, which you know told that terrible story of the Manson family and their murderous history, uh, Bugliosi apparently left out some key things. Anyway, that's all I know. Hopefully we will have a guest on to talk about this uh, provocative topic. If we can't book the author on this, we may bring our good friend uh, James Eugenio back on the program because I know that Jim is going to be up on this particular topic. You know, normally it's about this part of the program where we'll, we'll do an obituary, and we did some earlier. Uh, but I want to do one more, someone who passed over the summer whose not life we should note. This would be Leanne Russell who passed away at the age of 96, to quote from what The Week had to say about this geneticist. Leanne Russell arrived at the Manhattan Project's former headquarters in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, just two years after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Scientists had just started to understand the dangers of radiation exposure, and Russell began studying its role in congenital deformities. She and her husband, William, built the Mouse House, a laboratory populated by 200,000 mice. Their tests revealed that embryos are most vulnerable to radiation near the start of pregnancy. It was Russell who first saw the dangers of x-rays for pregnant women. Because of her work, doctors routinely ask women if they could be pregnant before administering such tests. Yet, initially, Russell said, her advisory, quote, brought the wrath of radiologists down upon our heads, unquote. I would note editorially at this point that those kind of radiologists or maybe the same sort of docs that start out doing bladder surgery and instead circumcise you. 
Leon Barak was born in Vienna to a chemical engineer father and singing teacher mother, said the New York Times. The Jewish family fled to Austria when she was 14, moving to London before arriving in New York. Lee, as she was known, studied chemistry at Hunter College, then attended a summer program in Maine where she met her future husband. He had pioneered the study of mutagenesis in mice and persuaded her to pursue a Ph.D. in zoology. After she graduated in 1949, they both went to work at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Russell irradiated mice because of their genetic similarity to humans, said the Washington Post. She spotted patterns depending upon the timing of radiation and concluded that human embryos were at their greatest risk in the first seven weeks of pregnancy. Ignoring her findings, Russell's laboratory told her it was too dangerous for her to work during the third trimester of her first pregnancy, said the Knoxville News Sentinel. Russell recalled replying, You're pretty wrong. Because it was the beginning of my pregnancy you should have been worried about. Russell will go on to drive research in mammalian genetics, including, this is what got my attention, her groundbreaking discovery that the presence or absence of a Y chromosome determined the sex of mammals. Yes, we apparently owe that basic bit of genetics and biology to Leanne Russell. She said in 2013, I was very fortunate in being given opportunities to pursue my own ideas. But this is sadly not the case for many young women hoping for scientific careers and ending up merely in supporting roles. You know, that kind of research is what we really love about, you know, high-tech stuff, which of late we've become somewhat less admiring of. Why should that be, you ask? Well, let me quote from this piece from CNN Business, article by Rachel Metz. On Wednesday afternoon, I clicked on a picture of a woman on a website called deepnude.com. Suddenly, her outfit disappeared and her naked breasts were on my computer screen. It was transfixing and nauseating. I felt like I'd just peeped through a stranger's window, utterly violating her privacy. A day later, that website had disappeared. Its creator suddenly had a crisis of conscience. If you type in the URL, you'll see a blank white page and the words not found. But before it disappeared, it offered visitors like myself free previews of a horrific AI-enhanced world where photos of women, any women, could be undressed via algorithms and shared with reckless abandon. Like the woman I saw, the resulting nudes weren't real, but they certainly looked like it. You know, we're great admirers of the Silicon Valley HBO show, and <laughs> you have to ask, how far removed from this is from the comedy program's Nip Alert app, which uh, got them into some trouble. And they continue on with our discussion of dubious, high-tech, Silicon Valley-type adventures. There's this article by Dustin Gardner from the San Francisco Chronicle. Dateline Sacramento, San Francisco Assemblyman Phil Ting has never been arrested, but facial recognition technology developed by Amazon links his image to a jailhouse mugshot. Ting is one of 26 state legislators who were wrongly identified as suspected criminals using the technology, according to results of a test released by the American Civil Liberties Union of Northern California. 
Matt Cagle, a technology and civil liberties attorney at the ACLU, said the organization ran its experiment using Amazon's recognition software and screened 120 lawmakers' images against a database of 25,000 mugshots. The program falsely identified one of five lawmakers, including Ting and two fellow San Francisco Democrats, Assemblyman David Chu and State Senator Scott Weiner. Now, critics of the software, including the ACLU, said the findings showed the need to block law enforcement from using the technology in officers' body cameras. Ting is carrying a bill, AB215, that would prohibit police departments from using any facial recognition technology on body cameras, warning it could lead to officers mistaking innocent people for potentially dangerous criminals. The bill passed the Assembly in May and is now in the Senate. Said Ting, clearly, this software is faulty. His bill is opposed by a host of law enforcement groups, including the California Peace Officers Association. Sean Rundle, the association's deputy director, said, No California police agencies are using the technology now, but police should have the chance to show how they could use it correctly. Supporters say police could use the technology like a red flag system to alert officers if an image captured on a body camera matches that of a suspect or someone in an arrest database. Microsoft announced last April that it had denied an unnamed California law enforcement agency's request to buy its recognition technology for body cameras. Amazon Web Services, the company unit that developed recognition, that's its name, criticized the ACLU's findings. A spokesman accused the privacy watchdog of once again knowingly misusing and misrepresenting Amazon's recognition to make headlines. Amazon suggests police agencies set the software's confidence threshold setting, a measurement of how accurate the software considers its suggested matches, at 99%. Cagle said the ACLU used the program's default 80% setting in its experiment with California's lawmakers' photos. Said Cagle, body cameras were promised as a police accountability tool, not as a surveillance system. People should be able to walk down the street without having their face logged into a government database. Last year, by the way, the ACLU ran a similar experiment using images of members of Congress. It found that Amazon's program incorrectly matched 28 of them with suspected criminals. Of course, we do want to say we are talking about congressmen here. All right, we got about three minutes left. Let's go out with some, uh, some things that sort of turned up from the miscellaneous department, comma, humorous. Someone, I don't know who sent this one around, a quote from Gloria Steinem, who reportedly said, how about we treat every young man who wants to buy a gun like every woman who wants to get an abortion? Mandatory 48-hour waiting period. Parental permission. A note from his doctor proving he understands what he's about to do. A video he has to watch about the effects of gun violence. Let's close down all but one gun shop in every state and make him travel hundreds of miles, take time off work, and stay overnight in a strange town to get him to get a gun. Make him walk through a gauntlet of people holding photos of loved ones who were shot to death, people who call him a murderer and beg him not to buy a gun. We like it. Now, I hate to close today's program talking about Donald Trump, but if you are going to talk about comedy, albeit dark comedy, well... He's a good place to be. I guess the Secretary of the Interior threatened to fire meteorologists at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which, you know, 
hires professional meteorologists to do things like track hurricanes. Evidently, when the president decided to play amateur meteorologist and predict that a hurricane was going to hit Alabama, and he was corrected by the authorities at NOAA to say, no, no, Alabama's not at risk, the embarrassment of our chief executive came into play and firings were threatened. We will in the weeks to come, reluctantly, of course, take up again the topic of how science is being challenged by those who don't know any. Oh, and if you're keeping score of Donald Trump's abilities as a weather forecaster, note the following chronology. September 2017, Category 5 Hurricane Irma evoked the following quote from Trump. Looks like it could be something that would not be good. September 2017, Category 5 Hurricane Maria, said Trump regarding Puerto Rico. This is an island surrounded by water, big water, ocean water. October 2018, Category 5 Hurricane Michael, Trump. It's like a big tornado, a massive tornado. September 2019, Category 5 Hurricane Dorian, said Trump. I'm not sure I've ever even heard of a Category 5. He's never heard of a Category 5 hurricane, and yet he believes he can plot its path. All right, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. My hope is on next week's program, I'll have a better voice. Be sure to plan to have some good material. This is Douglas Everett for Radio Parallax. Today and again next week. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.